Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, October the 25th, 2022. Earlier today, I had a very interesting conversation with the historian Joseph Sassoon. He's the author of a new book on the great Middle Eastern uh, Asian family, trading family, the Sassoons, the, the great global merchants and making of an empire. It's a wonderful book, a wonderful history, romantic, political, historical, above all else. Some insight into the into into understanding the capitalism of the 19th century. Uh, New York Times talked about it as the rise and fall of a great dynasty. I asked um, Sassoon who his favorite Sassoon was. And interestingly enough, he talked about a woman called Flora Sassoon, otherwise known uh, as Farah, uh, a classic woman, if you like, of the East, born in Bombay, ending her life in the United Kingdom. She was the quintessential, I guess, Jewish aristocratic Eastern woman. Uh, we are shifting, though, our geographical focus for today's show. We're going from women of the East to women of the West. Uh, my guest today is Katie Hickman. She has a new book out, Bravehearted, The Woman, not the woman, the women of the American West. Um, and it's a book about the settling of the American West. Very different kinds of women, I think, from Farah Sassoon. Uh, Katie is joining us from her barge uh, on the uh, southern side of the Thames River in London. Uh, Katie, uh, you're a, a very successful writer, journalist, travel writer, and novelist. Why did you choose to write this particular book about women of the American West? Well, I, it comes in a, in, a, in a line of other books that I've written in the past. So I have a particular interest in, in uh, telling women's stories and sort of rescuing women's stories and women's voices in particular from oblivion. You know, in the past, people have always thought that women's voices were not necessary to the argument um, because they often had no political voice or no positions of power. People thought that they what they thought and felt didn't really matter. So I sort of specialise in books that are re resuscitating those stories and say, hey, look, these women were actually there. What, what did they? Things look like from their point of view so that, that's the kind of main reason but the sort of subsidiary reason to that you know why women in America in particular it is I found years and years and years ago I was in Paris and I went to the very famous um, English language bookshop you probably know it's Shakespeare and Co just sells yes. books in English I think it might be Americans, actually. But anyway, it's a great one of the great bookshops of the world. And I bought this book, predominantly of photographs. They were old, black, beautiful, black and white, silver gelatin print reproduct, you know, reproductions of these beautiful photographs of lots of women on the Westwood trails. And they were not just white women. They were 
Native American women, they were um, African American women, they were Mexicans, there were there was this incredible variety of different of different women there, which was surprising to me because my my kind of image that I had of you know what the West, what Hollywood would call the Wild West, was all about, um, which I think is a is, is a very common one. I don't think it, it's my view was unusual. You know, I I was grew up watching Western in which there are practically no women at all, or very very male world. Or it's the kind of little house on the prairie model, which is very much, um, it's, you know, white women in sunbonnets. And um, I just thought that there was another story. There was another story to be told in there. Who were these other women, and what were their, what were their intersections? What was, you know, what was going on there? So that's that's how I started. And uh, yeah, it took me on this extraordinary extraordinary journey it was it was quite different from what i thought it was going to be right you're um uh you're actually uh born the same year as me your your, your parents uh diplomats and authors so you've had a like me and many of our viewers perhaps a, a fairly privileged upbringing mm -hmm. but you're obviously a woman as well it goes without saying do you <laughs> do you um <laughs> Do you think that you bring, as a woman, a particular sensibility as an author to this story? Or were you really, or are you approaching it essentially as a historian and, and treating it in, a, in, a, in an objective, distanced manner? Well, I mean, I, I would hope that as a historian, I am treating it in a you know, in an objective, distant manner. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I mean, if you mean, is it, is it very, um, you know, researched in a very meticulous and scholarly way, then I would hope that the answer to that was yes. But I, I think it's difficult to take yourself out of the... It's, it's, I'd be lying if I said that I could take myself entirely out of the out of the picture because of course we all you know we all come to it with our individual identities and our you know what, what's happened to us in the in the we are the people who we are so that is what gives it a kind of flavor I mean I do I did say in my in my introduction in this book that that it this this book, this book was very it had great it had great. Um, it has. It, I, it's a book that I feel great personal love for this book, and I. It, I've always had a very emotional, you know, emotional kind of response to the women's stories that I read about, and I, I in in some ways, I was quite puzzled by that because I've written, you know, three other books of history about other other types of women and I never had quite that experience of of this feeling of sort of closeness you know I felt that I you know a lot of the sources I use are first-hand accounts so I feel in the first instance I feel that I am like the custodian of these women's accounts so I need to be able to let allow them to tell their stories you know a lot of them wrote narratives it's incredibly well documented very 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 well documented right. the book has been wonderfully reviewed so far and it has come the, the reviews and congratulations on that. some of the reviewers have suggested that you bring a particular sensibility as a novelist many of 
yes. many of our viewers will be familiar with a couple of your wonderful novels, The Pindar Diamond and The Avery Gate, again, uh, sort of female-centric novels. Um, do yes. you feel that, I mean, on the one hand, you're, you're obviously a historian, but you're bringing a, a novelistic sensibility and craft to this story? Yeah. I mean, that is a, that is a, that's a great question. And the answer to that is yes. I mean, what I have learned in the many years that I spent being a novelist is I learned how to tell a story. And I, I think that so often history books, even when they are really excellent ones, um, perhaps lack a sense of narrative. You know, you, I know I, in my research, you, you read half a book and you think, hmm. Why do I, you know, why do I need, why do I need to go on? There is nothing kind of pulling you through. So I was always, I absolutely, definitely use a kind of novelist's skill, not in so far as I make things up. I don't make things up. Everything in the book is, you know, true, true and meticulously sourced. But I do think all the time that I'm doing it, I thought about what the experience of my readers would be like and what were going to be the things that were going to keep them turning the pages. And, you know, characters in the book, possibly, uh, uh, not, not really like, you know, characters in a novel, but I like to delve into the stories of some individual women in quite detail and give a lot of detail about their lives and what they were like and give them their give them their own dialogue because often you know they wrote things for themselves and I think that that is part of what a good storyteller does. It's a, it right, so soon does the same in I mean it's a very different kind of book but he gives a chapter in his book to uh, Farah Sassoon. Before yeah, we get to some of these characters because they define the book uh, Katie um, what exactly and I'm talking to you from San Francisco that's clearly in the American West but how would you define the American West and what years do you focus on in the book? Okay, well, I started in 1836, for a, which was before the big westward emigrations began for a particular reason, because that was the year in which the first two white women, two Presbyterian missionaries, made the overland journey from the Missouri River, which in, a, in the 1830s was considered to be, you know, the frontier, effectively, uh, all the way over to Oregon, so the very far Pacific Northwest, which in those days was not part of the States. It was like a foreign country. They had to take passports with them. So I started in that year because before it had been, it was that overland journey was considered to be impossible for a woman to undertake. It was too, too tough. It was six months or more traveling on horses across the Rocky Mountains, you know, across deserts. It was a really tough trip and nobody thought a, a woman could do it uh, obviously Native American women did it but no one thought no white woman had ever attempted it they did in 1836 and they survived and so and then uh, two years after that another four missionary women did the same journey and they also survived so the stories that this was now you know that this was possible began to filter back east and kind of open the you know open the doors for other people so the, the, the Western migrations, as far as you know, his historians are concerned, really start in the early 1840s. First one, 
the first civilian family to try that journey was in 1840. And then the, the numbers gradually increased from that point. And the West was was this sort of nebulous. It was it was really all the area west of the west of the you know, people talk about the trans Mississippi West and the Missouri River is a tributary of the Mississippi. So if you can imagine that river pretty much down the you know the sort of far eastern third of, of what is now the United States, so the whole of the rest of that of the continent um, was this called the West. And up to the Rocky Mountains, that was notionally part of the United, uh, the United belonged to the United States. It had been bought, um, you know, under the Louisiana Purchase. It was then known as Indian Territory. So, you know, there was, there was I, I quote, I'm using quote marks, you know, nothing there. Of course, there were plenty of Native American tribes there, but there were very, very, very few white people. On the other side, Rockies to the southern part belonged to Mexico in that time, and the northern part, what what is now you know Oregon and Washington State and those Pacific Northwest, wasn't owned by anybody. It was disputed land between Great Britain and and the United States. Katie, do I mean, much has been written, many historians have written about the idea of the West or the ideal of the West. Do you think, particularly in the 19th century, in the time you were right, uh, you, you, your book focuses on, that the West was a, a kind of gendered concept, something to be dominated, acquired, Lockean, settled, conquered? Ooh, good, good question. Um, well, there were plenty, there were some people who who you know didn't think that people should go west. You know, there were debates in Congress, people saying, "Why, why, you know, we we need us to stay here and you know farm the lands that we've got, and it's just a, you know a waste of, you know, it's just draining on our people to go to this land that you know that we don't know what's there, and uh, you know why should we go to that area?" So, so not everybody was in agreement about it to start off with. Uh, which is interesting, um, and I yes, that's a, that's an that is that is interesting. I mean, I think people. The thing is, people went west for so many different reasons. I think it's quite difficult to to generalize about it. And of course, mostly people went because they wanted what they hoped was going to be either free or really really cheap land. Uh, and the fact that there were other people, indigenous people living there, you know, didn't didn't worry them too much. Did most of the women you write about were they going as wives, as girlfriends, as yes, mothers? Yes, they going yes. independently. There, I, I think very few went independently. A few did, because there are always exceptions to the rule. But you know, it was a really long way nearly two and a half thousand miles from the Missouri jumping off points to the coast, west coast. Obviously not everyone went quite that far, but um, it was an incredibly long way. And at the beginning it was dangerous because people didn't really know what the route was. They didn't know how much to take with them. Mostly they either took too much or they took too little and then they starved. Um, right, and then they resorted to cannibalism. Famous in, uh, where we are in California, what was yeah. the women's role in the Donner Party? Well, I mean, they were incredibly tough 
and a lot of them survived. I mean, they, they, I mean, I think it was about a third of the whole, of the whole party who survived. You know, the story is very well known. Um, they set off too late. Uh, is was the with the moral in the in the tale. They set off too late. You were supposed to leave in at the end of April, beginning of May, at the latest, because if you didn't. Uh, if you didn't, you know, you, you ran the risk that there would be snow in the mountains, which is exactly what happened to the Donna Reed party. And you wouldn't be able to cross, in, in their case, the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they were a day late. They, they were, because winter came early, there was, there was a snowfall. They were some mile from the pass that would take them over the side, but a big snowfall in the night meant that they had to overwinter and the ones who survived survived because they had a dead companion uh, and Let's i think on. so it's 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 a gruesome narrative i mean it gets glamorized it by hollywood now but many of the women you write about i mean it, there aren't always hollywood endings to these narratives uh talk to me about some of these women um olive olive Oakman. tell me about um, her is a uh, sort of ambiguous figure. I mean, you can see, um, uh, you know, this is a young woman with a very heavily, you know, with ta facial tattoos on the lower part of her face. And in fact, she also had tattoos on her upper arms and her the dress that, in the photograph. Are people able to see this photograph? You can see yeah. these, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of geometric pat leaves of her, of her dress. Yeah. And that was supposed to, you know, imitate the tattoos that are on her body. And she, just to give a very precise account of it, a young white American woman, her family were Brewsterites, taking an alternative route to California, which is down south through what is now Arizona. Uh, they ended up becoming completely isolated. The rest of their company um, either died or, or, you know, gave up. So they were on their own. They were attacked by um, a group of Yavapai um, Native Americans. That her family were massacred, all of them, except for herself, Olive, and a younger sister called Marianne. So they were taken as slaves. But then, luckily for them, a year later, they were sold on to another tribe, the Mojave tribe, who treated them really well, and they became assimilated into this tribe they the, the, the tattoos that olive had were a sign of her you know belonging to the tribe um you know her sister died but she survived and was taken under the wing of the the wife of the chief of the mojave indians and was sort of set to i mean she was really completely assimilated into this tribe and by all you know, attempts and purposes, she was happily assimilated into the tribe. Unbeknownst to her, it, it has the makings of a movie, this story. It is so extraordinary. Unbeknownst to her, one of her brothers survived the attack. She didn't realise, she thought they were all killed, but her brother survived. And he made it his sort of life's work to try to find out what had happened to his sisters. And he, you know, offered money for her to be ransomed. And after many years searching for her, he finally, they tracked her down in this um, Mojave village and she was ransomed and brought back to, quote, unquote, civilization. She was interviewed by, she was taken to this place called Fort Yuma and interviewed by the, you know, the, the captain. It was a, mil, a US military post, interviewed by the captain there and asked, was she 
you know, badly treated. She said, no, she wasn't. You know, and how, you know, how was it for her? She said that she'd been well treated. She'd been given food. You know, the, the wife of the chief had uh, had really protected her even when everybody else was dying of starvation, which is what had happened to her younger sister. So she gave a good account of what had happened. She'd been treated by this tribe. But then she and her brother got sort of into the hands of this um, an itinerant Methodist preacher called the Reverend Stratton, who said, this is a great story. I'm going to write, shall I write your story for you? You know, we can make some money out of this. We can make a, I'm sure he thought he could make a buck or two. And indeed he did. He took this story and he completely altered it so that it was, you know, that the, these poor, white, defenceless women who were treated terribly by their quote-unquote savages. Not the first or the last you know, time that, that, that has happened, uh, Katie. What, what about Marguerite McLaughlin, um, who, uh, uh, in, in contrast, uh, uh, was uh, uh, was half Cree, so she... Yes. She actually has the blood of Native Americans. What's so remarkable about her? Why did you choose to write about her? Because her story is so unlike Native American women and what they were and right. who they and were. Such good contrast with the uh, the Oatman story. Go on. Very good contrast with the Oatman story. So Marguerite McLaughlin was, as you say, half Cree. And she was the first lady of Fort Vancouver. And you've got a photograph of her there. And I don't think, and there's a photograph of her in, in the book. I, I the don't think the photograph does her justice. It makes her look rather grumpy and cross. And I, mm. all the accounts of her, contemporary accounts of her, say that she was, you know, she was a very warm, kind, lovely woman. And she was the wife of the chief factor of, of Fort Vancouver, who was actually a Scotsman. He was from the Orkney Islands. And those cross-cultural marriages were very common. This was in the early 18, you know, this was in the first half of the 19th century. And so Marguerite um, spoke many languages. She was uh, an extremely um, skilled sempstress. She, I think she was a good musician as well. And she ruled as the first lady over Fuva, which was one of the very, very, very few settlements of any size. In fact, the only settlement of any size in, in what was then known as Oregon country. And so <clears throat> when these two missionaries, so the first two missionary women, Narcissa Whitman and Eliza Spaulding, where I was talking about them earlier, made this extraordinary journey, they ended up in Fort Vancouver. And... Uh, having thought that all Native American women were, quote-unquote, you know, heathens who they went wanting to convert and savages, quote-unquote, they were presented with this, this woman who was, must have completely... So, uh, just to be clear, um, did, did um, Narcissa Whitman and... Uh, Eliza Spaulding, did they recognise that? Did they acknowledge it? I think they did. I think they did. I think they were forced to you know i mean i think i think they were astonished um but but i yes no i mean you know she lived in the chief factor's house lived in a grander way a more, more refined way than anything i think that these two mission women had, had and uh, we've done a number of shows about the shall we say the the renaissance in 
pre-European history uh, in North America, learning more and more that these people weren't quote-unquote savages. We were the savages, or no, the Europeans were the savages. Not by, not by any means, not by any means, but they were right. thought of as such by people such as missionaries who thought, you know, benighted heathen, uh, we must go and save them. We must go so, and save them. So, uh, Katie, obviously, the other terrible reality of 19th century America was slavery. Yes. Uh, one of the other characters that you deal with in the book, um, and not the, the only uh, black woman, but certainly one African-American woman, uh, Biddy Mason, Biddy who was uh, the, the, a Mississippi slave um, who fought for her freedom through the courts of California. What's so yes. unique about Biddy Mason? Yes. Was that, by the way, was that a picture of her descendants that you just showed? These people uh, who... You know, these are people laying a wreath at the memorial in downtown And her birthday, so sort of a celebration of Biddy Mason. Wonderful. Well, she is an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary woman. A Mrs. A slave from slave woman from Mississippi. Um, she, her, the family who had enslaved her were more Mormon converts. And they went from Mississippi with a group of other Mormon converts to Utah, which was just, so Salt Lake City was just beginning to get going. Brigham Young had just taken, you know, his saints to start his uh, city of the saints in the, in the middle of the desert. Biddy and her, her probably half-sister, it's not known, but it was another young enslaved woman, uh, were forced to go in Utah. There was no, um, you know, Brigham Young had no objections to slavery, so there were quite a few southern Mormon converts who took their slaves with them, and they continued as slaves in Utah. About five or six years later, this was in the early 1850s, when California had been created a state and was a free state. Uh, this, I, I don't want to say her family, but the family who owned her, who was a, a, a family called Smith, took Hannah and Biddy, both of them, to California with them to start another Mormon uh, you know, enclave. But of course, slavery wasn't allowed in California. And so uh, Biddy was helped by a rather remarkable man called Robert Owens, who had himself been a slave, but had found his freedom in California and became a successful businessman. He was a very active abolitionist and when the Smith family decided that it was clear that they were not going to be able to keep their, their enslaved people with them for much longer because, you know, it was the very beginning of the state. Uh, and so the, the law system was in a, you know, in a very, you know, in its early state. And most people didn't really bother much about the law, but that was beginning to change. So Mr. Smith decided he was going to go back to Texas and take all his um, slaves with him. Robert Owens galloped into the, in, into the, you know, the, 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 the place. They were all gathered in their wagons, ready to, ready to leave just in the nick of time with the of habeas corpus that he'd managed to get from the local sheriff's office. And so Biddy was taken with her children, of which she had at least five, to the local jail for her own protection until there could be a, a law case. Uh, the Smiths tried everything to stop this happening. And the, the last thing that they did was to bribe 
the women's lawyer, Robert Owens, had found a lawyer for them, and the Smiths bribed the lawyer with $100, which was a really large amount of money, and the lawyer said, okay, I'm I'm out of here, I'm not going to represent you. So uh, lost, because no person could give testimony against a white person in a court of law, even in California as a free state. But the judge, who's a wonderful man called Judge Hayes, Benjamin Hayes, said, okay, well, I can't try this case in court, but I can listen to your story in my private chambers. And so he took these women into his private chambers, away from their, you know, owner frothing at the mouth with rage, heard their story, and there was that he gave all, both women and their children, I think there were a group of about 13 Afri enslaved African-Americans who he um, granted their freedom. And then Biddy well, that, went, uh, went so, so, yeah, so that... really successful. She was a really successful midwife. She was the, one of the first African-American women to own property in Los Angeles in her own right. You know, her, her story, it's a really, really wonderful... Yeah, certainly not the, the last... African-American woman from Mississippi to be successful in California. The most curiously named person in your book is the Red Cormorant Woman. Who was Marie Bordeaux, <laughs> otherwise known as the Red Cormorant Woman? Tell me about her. Well, Red Cormorant Woman was the mother of one of my most sort of the most amazing Native American sources in the book. So Red Cormorant Woman was married to a French-American fur trapper called James Bordeaux, which is why she's Marie Bordeaux, and one of their children. So this was very common practice. Fur traders uh, and trappers often married Native American women and, and had very happy relationships with them and had children by them. So there were many uh, mixed-race children, particularly on the on the plains, this was on the Great Plains near around Fort Laramie, uh, which is where the Bordeaux lived. And they had a daughter called the, who, who's we know as Susan Bordeaux. And so the daughter of Red Cormorant Woman, and in her later life, an incredible memoir all about what life was like really before before the emigrant trails you know, started to heat up, so to speak, what happened during, but everything from the point of view, from the Native American point of view, rather than from the white point of view. And that, that was a big challenge for me, was trying to find sources that would include, you know, uh, uh, the people on the other side of the equation, so to speak. So Red Cormorant Woman, I don't, not that much is known about her, but we know a lot about her daughter, Susan Bordeaux, because of this extraordinary account that she, that she left about her, about her life, growing up on the Laramie Plains, um, at, sort of kind of at the beginning, when things are beginning to turn sour and at the beginning of the Indian Wars, and it's an extraordinary right. Um, uh, Katie, one of my favourite movies about the period is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Robert oh, Altman's right. yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of counter-cultural uh, re revisionist history of the West yes. uh, in which um, Julie Christie plays a, a very mm -hmm. warm-hearted uh, lady who, who manages uh, a, a Western brothel. I mean, it's, it's quite... Yes. Quite, I, I, it's serious in its, it's own way, but it's also very entertaining. You you reveal a, a much darker side of 
sex and the, and the sex business, uh, particularly in terms of Chinese women, 72% of Chinese immigrants, I, I guess they were female Chinese immigrants yes. in, in 1870, were in the sex, were, were sex workers. How, yes. how did this define or redefine uh, the women uh, of the West, of the American West, particularly Chinese uh, immigrants? Well, I think it was a you know, it was a brutal fact of life in China that uh, um, families would quite routinely sell their into slavery to be trafficked. You know, they, China suffered so much from repeated famines and from terrible poverty, and I think it was it was it was a, a distressingly common occurrence. And a lot of them ended up in well, San Francisco, particularly in the early days, you know, when gold was very recently discovered. So after gold was discovered in, in 48 and, and the main kind of rush of the gold rush was the year after that. Very, very male. There were lots of women there as well, but it was predominantly a male thing. So there was lots of many openings for um, professional women. And... Uh, um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those were Chinese you know, women, and there, you know, there are accounts of these women. In this is in the earth of San Francisco before there was much of a police presence, or anyway, it was just a complete boom town. You know, women would be loaded off the boats and sold openly, auctioned openly on the docks of San Francisco. But it is a more, it's a kind of more mixed story than you might think, because obviously, um, you know, to our modern sensibilities, this is a terrible thing. But there were women, Chinese women, and also, you know, American women in other parts of um, the West who were of an entrepreneurial um, bent, shall we say, who, took, you know, took advantage of it and, you know, ran, ran the brothels themselves uh, you know, made uh, you know, made a success of it, and I do. There is some. Um, I'm not sure how much I. I can really. Uh, I was going to say condone this. It's not a question of really condoning it, but I think that the Chinese attitude to prostitution was culturally perhaps different from the one that um, uh, Western. Well, and say Western people, white right. people had. So, for example, if a woman was a prostitute, a Chinese woman was a prostitute, and she then met somebody and married that man, a, a Chinese man, there was no stigma attached to it. You know, she had been doing what her family desired her to do. She'd been a dutiful daughter and by becoming a, a prostitute, and it wasn't, you know, there wasn't the, the white you know, our Euro-American sense that if you had lived a life of sin, quote, that there wasn't really much coming back from right. that. Right. So, so Katie, let's go. We, we, we need to try and conclude here. It's, it's a complicated story, a multifaceted story. We, we've done many shows on contemporary feminism, what women need to do now to have successful careers. You talked about entrepreneurialism. We've done shows on women beginning boldly with writers like Christy Arscott, others about women organizing in the labor force, many different shows. What could women, is there any particular lesson that women can learn from, from your stories? Is there, are there 
a couple of perhaps generalizations. I know that you're a storyteller above all else rather than a sociologist, but um, are there one or two lessons that women in particular and perhaps all Americans le couldn't learn from Bravehearted, the women of the American West that you write about uh, from the 19th century, from the middle of the 19th century? Okay, I would say two things. What One is the more general thing, which is that, you know, I tried not to make, I tried to get away from the idea of stereotypes. So I, so there are no heroes or villains. You know, everybody has their story. And you, if you, once you get to hear what someone's story is and the story of their life, it makes you understand them much more. Uh, and I think that's that is a lesson for all of us. Uh, a particularly. What should we say? No heroines or villains or villainesses. No, no. <laughs> I'm not sure there's such a word as villainess. No heroines or villains. No heroines or villains. There, well, there are a few male villains in there, I have to say. But you know, that it's not about pointing a finger at, any, at anybody. I was more interested in seeing, you know, how these how these stories played out. I think stereotypes are really dangerous because then we can demonize people. And, you know, uh, it, it happens in, in all, but your country and mine, you know, immigrants coming over. If you lump everybody in the same category together and you don't treat people, it, it, it changes, your, changes your view of someone if you give them the time to tell their story and see where they're coming from. I think that was something that that's something that's very important to me. But from the point of view of of girls, I mean, somebody asked me the other day, oh, so what was the quality that these women had to have in order to survive all the, you know, this incredibly tough experience that they all, almost all of them went through? And it's not so much that it was the people with a particular quality who survived, it was the fact that when all this stuff was thrown at them, they found resources within themselves that perhaps they didn't know were there. So I think people and girls, perhaps young women especially, are more resilient than they think they are. That would be that would be my message. I think it's amazing what you can. It's amazing. I mean, you're going to stay more through. resilient than men, which probably not, is true. No, 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 no. I'm not going to make comparisons. Comparisons. No, no, I'm making comparisons. So I'm allowed to. Uh, Are so, you? <laughs> well, I, I can, I'm allowed to do whatever I like. Katie Hickman, uh, congratulations on Bravehearted, the women of the American West. It's uh, a wonderful read, wonderful story told by one of the world's leading storytellers. So congratulations on the book. It's just out. I think it'll be a bestseller like so many of your other books. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Katie? What other books would you recommend our viewers and, or, and listeners? Oh, do you know what? <sighs> I knew you were going to ask me this, and uh, the thing—I tell you—the thing that I read that I enjoyed the most recently is actually quite an old book, and I bet you know it. It's called *True Grit*. *True Grit* mm. by uh, Charles Portia, so which has a kind of Western theme, although actually it's set in—I think it's set in Texas, isn't it? Um, but it has this extraordinary character, the twelve-year-old Matty, which she called Matty Ross who goes after her, the, the, the man who killed her husband and, um, you know, links up with a couple of old reprobates. But um, now there, there is a young woman. That is, I mean, I know she's a character, but honestly, she could easily, so easily have been one of the real-life women who I write about. 
you know, just undeterred, just keeping, just keeping going, you know, no matter what was thrown at her. It's a great movie as well. I, I saw the movie first, actually, before I, before I read the book, but the book is just completely great. I really recommend that. Excellent. Uh, 